Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 501. It is a Tuesday, August 31st, 2010. That means another month is gone and I want to wake you up to something. That means that we are now only four months from the end of the year. That means that we have gone way past the threshold of halfway through the year. And I don't know if you've noticed something, but I noticed something last night when I was outside watering my garden. It's changed. The temperatures have changed. It's still hot in a lot of the United States. I'm in Texas, folks. It's so hot down here, we can cook on the streets in the summertime. We could probably still do that midday right now. But what's different is at 7.30, when you're outside watering the garden, it's actually cool out. Autumn is coming, and that means winter's coming behind it. We're going to talk about a different type of winter coming today, the type of winter that we prepare for on an ongoing basis, the economic winter and where we're heading forward with the economy. Now, look, I know that some of you guys, like the economy's not really what you want to, to dig into and talk about. And, you know, some of my lessons on the Federal Reserve are maybe a little too in-depth. It's not going to be like that today, but we're going to talk about what's actually going on. This show's going to be a little more temporal than a lot of my shows. It's going to be a little bit more based on what's going on right now than the grand scheme of things, and it is going to go into the economy. Please give me a shot today, though, if the economy's not your thing. This is going to not be about politics, and I'm going to hope that if you're commenting in the show notes today that we can comment about mathematics versus politics. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do that, um, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping, make sure we take care of our sponsors and let you know about a few other things like we do every day. And we try to keep the show as commercial-free as possible, but these guys do a lot to help make sure the show's here for you. Five days a week, Monday through Friday, I'm here for about an hour a day with you to share your morning drive if you download me and take me in the car, or to share about an hour of your work and hopefully make your day more educational, more entertaining, and at times inspiring. I don't know how inspiring talking about the economy is going to be, but I'm going to try to make you feel good about your choices and your options going forward at the end. Taking care of our sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day number one is Backyard Food Production. Marjorie down there south of Austin has put together a DVD of how she turned her small farm into a food production machine. Uh, a independent food production machine that produces a lot of what her family uses as far as food and resources. Those techniques can be adapted for your small farm or your small backyard. It's up to you anywhere in between. I have looked at a lot of stuff in the permaculture world, the small gardening world, uh, everything from uh, Bill Mollison's design manual of permaculture, which is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in the world when it comes to stuff like this, all the way down to basic books like Mel Bartholomew's Square Foot Gardening. Nothing has really given me more practical things to do than Marjorie's DVD, though. 
at $24.95, I think it's one hell of an investment. If you don't have it, my question is, why don't you have it yet? Maybe because you heard about it today for the first time. If so, go get you a copy. Uh, next up today is uh, Shelf Reliance. Note I said shelf, not self-reliance, but shelf reliance. Some amazing food storage stuff. I mean, just really great innovative systems, a different way of doing things. I just heard from somebody. This is why I love having sponsors that sponsor a show like this. They ordered what's called the Cancellator, which is like a little mini uh, food storage uh, device to keep in your uh, in your pantry. So it organizes your cans, so they rotate. It's a lot like the Big Harvest 72 I did a review of on YouTube. I'll put a link in uh, today's show notes for that for you. But it's a little mini one. Costs less money, fits in a, in a typical pantry versus something you know that's, that's big and large like the Harvest 72. She said, you know what? They sent me two. Didn't ask for them. Didn't do anything wrong. They just... Sent me two of them. Told me I was a valued customer. I'm not promising you they're going to send you two. Just the fact that they do stuff like that every once in a while, you know, that tells you that they care about their customers and they care about having a good name in their industry. And that's why I'm glad they're a sponsor. Remember, to find our sponsors, the best way to do that is go to thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on our banners in the right-hand margin and check out what they have to offer you. Backyard Food Production and Shelf Reliance, great sponsors, as are the rest that are there. Real quick, I haven't said this in a long time. I want people to know this that maybe are new listeners. Sponsors on this show are personal endorsements. They are not people with a check. When a sponsor wants to sponsor this show, first of all, is there space available? I only take 12. I've been sold out with one new sponsor in the last 14 months. One space open in 14 months. When a sponsor does get an opportunity to become a sponsor, they go in front of our moderators on our forum, and my moderators on my forum check into them, Better Business Bureau, look for any kind of bad press about them, look at their product offering, make sure it's not a scam, and only after my moderators say, Jack, it's okay to take them, can I take them? That's my listener ad council that protects you. I don't know if any other show company, website, anywhere, any place that does that. Uh, and people told me I was nuts when I did that, that I would be giving up uh, potentially big sponsors with big money. But what I have are great sponsors that take care of you. Speaking of taking care of you, check out our gear shop. We have lots of cool stuff there. Shirts, hats, all kinds of new, cool new stuff. And consider supporting my show, man. Um, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, some free videos uh, that are available nowhere else. A lot of discounts to our sponsors and other folks. Um, really great opportunity. Check out the Members tab at thesurvivalpodcast.com for more information on that. And with that, let's get into today's main topic of the show. As I said, I really want to keep this about mathematics and about money and about common sense and get out of the left-right paradigm. I went through to come up with, you know, I guess it's like nine bullet points I have here for you in a little segment off of YouTube with uh, Peter Schiff talking about a bond bubble. I had to go through 70 different pieces of, of journalism to, to cull down to these nine. And including in these nine, wherever there's a place for comments or, or what have you. And in most of the blog posts that, like I would find one blog post and it would lead me to another blog post and eventually I'd find the source material. In the, the comments section, well, if Obama would stop doing this, followed by, well, Bush is the one that did that, and back and forth, and Bush and Obama, and Bush and Obama, and Obama inherited this, and, and Bush made it worse, and Obama's really made it worse because he spent more money in one year than Bush spent in ten, and on and on and on and on. Shut the hell up about it! 
That's what I wanted to say, not you, not you listening out there. But it's just how I feel when I look at this stuff, because here's the problem in the mainstream world today, the world of what I call the sheep. It doesn't matter which shepherd they're following, they're still a sheep. They're not thinking for themselves. It doesn't matter one damn bit how much blame George W. Bush gets and how much blame Barack Obama gets for where we are today when it comes down to what it's going to mean for me and you. And we can keep going back and we can look at the deficits that were created under Clinton. You'll say, he had a surplus. No, he didn't. He had a surplus in a year. You look at the overall administration, you look at the money that's not on the books, and you look what happened to the Social Security Administration under Clinton, and he had a deficit too. And so did Bush Sr., and so did Ronald Reagan, and so did Jimmy Carter, and so did Gerald Ford. And I can just keep going back, all the way back. All the way back. And the last president I can find that actually made it a priority to pay off our national debt and free this country of debt was Andrew Jackson. He was our seventh president. That's ancient history today. Let the politics of economics go. Because there ain't anybody in any party that's done anything to fix this crap in a hundred years. And when you hear how bad it is today, you're going to realize we don't have time to argue whose fault it is anymore. That would be like falling out of an airplane with a parachute on your back, talking to another person who fell out of an airplane with a parachute on his back. The two of you are plummeting to earth at terminal velocity. You are going to make giant splats when you hit the bottom. And the two of you argue about who pushed you out. And the entire time you're falling, all you have to do is shut up and pull your ripcord. But no, you want to argue about whose fault it is that you're falling. Well, the sheep can argue all the way to the ground about whose fault it is. And when they get to the ground and make a splat, it's not really going to matter. So please, try as hard as you can as we look at the economy, not just with me today, but as you go forward and you look at blogs and you look at stories and you look at the propaganda from both sides of the same real aisle. You know, the, the left and right split, somewhere around the back those guys come together underground. All right? Forget it. Let's look at common sense of the economy. Let's look at what's going on right now. Um, there's been a lot of press that in 2013, Social Security Administration would begin to pay out more money than it takes in. And I told you a year ago that that number was a lie that it would happen in 2011, not 2013, and I was wrong. Unfortunately for us, so are the people that told us it was 2013. I missed the number by about a year. They missed it by four years because, yes, officially in August of 2010, for the first time since 1983, the Social Security Administration is bringing in less money than it pays out. Now, look, I want to talk about something before I read this story so that you can, again, breaking down the nonsense of uh, blame games and pointing at each other. For a long time, proponents of saving Social Security said, look, the problem with Social Security isn't that there's not enough money there. It's that the government keeps taking the money away. And if we had Al Gore's lockbox, everything would be fixed. Fine, fine. Let's, let's just say, okay. What we're talking about here is not whether or not the money is in the box. We're talking about dollars in versus dollars out. Here's where the people that say that are right. 
This is what happens when you pay Social Security, and I think most people are not aware of this unless you listen to this show or you stay financially informed other ways. Let's say that you paid $1,000 of Social Security taxes last month. You have a good salary. You make a good money. Uh, let's call it 500 500 bucks in Social Security. Well, you look at that and you think, well, that's $500 into the Social Security system. It wasn't $500. It actually was $1,000. Why? Because if you work for me and you paid $500 in Social Security, guess what, bud? I paid an additional $500 matching your Social Security. And that's why most Americans don't understand the biggest tax you pay is Social Security. If I wasn't paying the government $500 matching on you, I could afford to give it to you and your salary. You wouldn't have $500 more. You'd have $1,000 more. Or you wouldn't have $200 more. You'd have $400 more. Or you wouldn't have $100. You'd have, get it? Get it? Get how it works? Whatever the number is, double it, and that's how much more I could afford to pay you. Instead, that money goes off into a nebulous thing called the Social Security Fund. Then what happens is the federal government sticks their greedy little freaking hand in there because they can't balance their own books and says, you know what, to pay for general things like, you know, wars in Iraq, that's not an anti-war statement, it's just a mathematical fact, or stimulus bills, again, not an anti-Obama statement, just mathematical fact, to pay for stuff that we cannot freaking afford, we'll go into the Social Security lockbox that's not locked, We take the money out, we write an IOU. We put it back in the box, and we just keep doing that. And there's never any money in there. And we just take the float, and we use it to skate by and pay the Social Security benefits. What's going on now, though, is in spite of that rating, if you stop even the rating, it's like let's just make it simple math because it's billions and trillions of dollars that are hard for us to get our num our heads around. Let's just say it's a million dollars coming in and 1.1 million dollars going out. Let me read the actual report to you. The annual this is on uh, Yahoo News link in the show notes as always when I use a, a trusted news source. The annual report of the trustees of Social Security and Medicare issued early in August 2010 contains some unwelcome news for the first time since 1983. By the way, in 1983, we're in the middle of jacking up the rate. That's why it didn't fall apart back then. Social Security is going to bring in less money than it pays out. This point has been expected for years, thanks to the fact Social Security expenses are rising more quickly than revenue. However, until recently, America was not expected to cross over that point for several years. Indeed, when the first leaks indicated Social Security would bring in less money than paid out appeared in March, the official position was it wouldn't occur until 2016. Now, we actually had officials saying it was 2013 last year, then lying this year and saying, oh, no, 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 it's going to be 2016 again. So, In March, the official number was it won't be till 2016. Between March and August, it became, um, yeah, it's now. Let me go back to the article. The root of the problem, according to the report, is that the costs are rising faster than income. You think, geniuses? Last year, Social Security payouts were equal to nearly 5% of the nation's total GDP. That means we paid out 5% of the nation's total production in everything. GDP is everything we produce, from cars to money in a bank that earns interest. It's everything. It's our production. 
5% alone in Social Security. Within the next 25 years, as the middle-aged population ages faster than young families have new children, that cost will rise to over 6%. So far, Obama administration officials are underplaying the significance of a Social Security report by highlighting the comparatively positive state of Medicare funds. In contrast to Social Security, Medicare funding now looks stable for a decade or more, thanks to cost reductions introduced as part of the 2009 health care bill. The trustees published one annual report covering both, which in this case turns out to be convenient for political spin. I'm going to let the article go. You can read the rest of it there. It talks about insolvency, meaning the Social Security Administration going completely broke somewhere between 2035 and 2040. Um, but let me just again reiterate We weren't going to go into this state until 2016 in March, and now we're here. So when exactly will Social Security go broke? I'm not sure. But what we need to take away from this is the system doesn't work and it's broken. We need to talk about, real quick, this Medicaid thing. Because if we're going to examine the economy, again, this is not politics. I don't care what you think about health care reform and the Obama health care bill and whether it's good or bad. Let's look at the money, the economics, and say, okay, well, at least Medicaid is doing better. Do you know why Medicaid is doing better? Because in the health care bill, a large portion of the expense of Medicaid has been off put from the federal government and forced into the state governments. So basically they said, yeah, Texas, you're going to have to pay more. Yeah, Pennsylvania, you're going to have to pay more. Yeah, Florida, you're going to have to pay more. Yeah, Michigan, you're going to have to pay more. Yeah, California, we know you're broke, but you're going to have to pay more. So the federal government took some of its expense and forced it on the states. An unfunded mandate is what it's called. So sure, the Medicaid number looks better because we're making more money come into it And we're also creating a, a, a reduction in spending, not by spending less, but by making someone else pay the bill. See, whether it's run by, by Republicans or Democrats, that's how government always fixes a bill. It's not by reducing the expense, it's by making someone else pay for it. And in this case, the federal government turned to, instead of the people individually, they turned to the people collectively known as the states. So Medicaid is just as bad off as it ever was because the states are left holding the bill. The states can't afford to pay the bill, so what's going to happen is as the states inch closer and closer toward bankruptcy, California, Florida, Michigan, Hawaii, and the other 13 states on the verge of bankruptcy, the other 13 states that have had uh, leading economists come out and say, if you're going to buy a bond in this state, you better buy a short insurance against it because the state may not be able to pay its own damn bond. All right. As those states are pushed closer and closer to bankruptcy, what are they going to do? They're going to go to the federal government and say, we need some money. And the federal government, like it always does, will have to bail them out. Meaning the Medicaid expense will just get paid out of a different bucket. So Medicaid, Social Security are both broke. So is Medicare, by the way. There's a $55 trillion hole, by best estimates, in Medicare and Medicaid alone between now and 2050. And now officially, now this is the big upshot, it's now officially Social Security is beginning to fall apart. And fall apart by we can't afford to pay the bills anymore. And it makes me think back to an interview I watched with uh, Ben Bernanke, with Ron Paul just grilling him in front of the Congress about three years ago. And he said, Mr. Chairman, Ron Paul said this, Mr. Chairman, can you guarantee the value of Social Security payments in the future. And Mr. Bernanke said, we can guarantee that they'll be paid. And Braun said, it's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking if you can guarantee the value. 
And Bernanke said, well, of course we can't guarantee the value. Now, you wonder what that means. You have to understand money to know what that means. What that meant is, look, if your Social Security check is supposed to be $1,500 or $2,500, depending on how it gets raised or lowered or whatever, in, in 2030, Bernanke saying, well, we can send the check, but we can't guarantee the value of the money. In other words, we can't counter inflation for the people on Social Security. Cost of living and all that, that's all crap when we get into, into, into true inflation. So you might get your check that you're counting on, you know, if you're 55 and you're going to be in a, you know, retirement in 15 years or, or, or so. You might get a check, but what the federal, the chairman of the, the Federal Reserve said in front of Congress is he can guarantee your check will show up. He can't guarantee you what it'll buy you. This is the state of Social Security. This is the state of a program that takes up 5% of our entire production as a nation. This is the state of a program designed to keep old people from living in the streets. This is what it's come to. This nation is going bankrupt. And nothing can show that more than Social Security. This is not Republican versus Democrat. This is mathematics. The money's not there anymore. It's just not. Right now, about five point some people work to support one on Social Security. In another ten years, it'll be three. And that's, that's their estimates again, folks. I'm telling you, by 2015, they'll be able to send you a little picture of your old person. It'll be that specific. It'll be one or two people working to support one on, one on Social Security. The only way that this can be fixed... And this is why it's important that we understand this and the ramifications of it. The only way we can fix Social Security now is raise taxes and cut benefits. That's it. There is no other way to do this. It doesn't matter if you create the lockbox, right? First of all, the money's already gone. But even if we create the lockbox today, even if the government made good on its IOUs that it can't make good on, Because that's what I left. It left a piece of paper in the in the fund. We owe back ourselves X dollars. They don't owe it to themselves. They owe it to you. You're the one that paid it in. Even if it was there. Once we go to a point where a program takes in less than it pays out, it's over. You know that can't work. Especially in the government sector, it can't work. If you have expenses in your household that exceed your income... You may be able to look really good for a while, but sooner or later, if you don't rectify the discrepancy, there's no more money in your bank account, and this month's uh, paycheck doesn't pay this month's bills, and you fall behind. And each month after that, you keep falling behind in a cascade until eventually you go broke. Our government is not immune from this. That's, that's what's going on in our economy right now. Social Security is officially bankrupt today. Now. It's just in a death spin. And the only way to fix it is, uh, I hate to say it, that's the only way to fix it, is to raise taxes. Um, we also need to look at, well, what are they going to do? And there's a great article by a guy named Alan Sloan that was written back in February of 2010. And it says, next in line for a bailout, Social Security. And I like articles like this because later on we can see that they were true. Let me read a little bit of it. 
Don't look now, but even as the bank bailout is winding down, again, February 2010 here, another huge bailout is starting, this time Social Security System. report from Congressman uh, Congressional Budget Office shows that for the first time in 25 years, Social Security is taking in less taxes than it's spending on benefits. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Whoa, 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 wait a minute! Let's go here! Uh, August 2010, for the first time since 1983, Social Security brings in less money than it pays out. August. Breaking news. Go back to him. First, but even as the bank, Congressional Budget Office shows that the first time in 25 years, Social Security is taking in less taxes than it. Oh, do you mean we've been lied to again? Do you mean that we already knew this in February and a public relations campaign by our government kept us from finding it out? Wow. Let's keep reading. Instead of helping to finance the rest of the government, as it has done for decades, our nation's biggest social program needs help from the Treasury to keep benefit checks from bouncing. In other words, a taxpayer bailout. No one has officially announced that Social Security will be cash negative this year, but you can figure it out for yourself as I did by comparing two numbers in a recent federal budget update that the nonpartisan CBO issued this last week. The first number is $120 billion, the interest that Social Security will earn on its trust fund in fiscal 2010. The second is $92 billion, the overall Social Security surplus for fiscal 2010. This means that without the, without the interest income, Social Security will be $28 billion in the whole this fiscal year, which ends September 30th. Why discard the interest? Because, as people like me have said repeatedly over the years, the interest, which consists of Treasury IOUs that the Social Security Trust Fund gets on its holdings of government securities, doesn't provide Social Security with any cash that it can use to pay its bills. The interest is merely an accounting entry with no economic significance. Yay! This is wonderful stuff, isn't it, folks? Social Security has been cash negative since the early 1980s, when it came so close to running out of money that it was making plans to stop sending out benefits checks. That led to the famous Greenspan Commission report, which recommended trimming benefits and raising taxes, which Congress did. These actions produced hefty cash surpluses, which until this year have helped finance the rest of the government. There you go, folks. They stole your money and they used it to pay for everything else. But even then it was clear surpluses would be temporary. Now years earlier than projected, wow, the government got a projection wrong. Social Security is adding to the government's borrowing needs, even though the program still sells a surplus on paper. And you can read the rest of this article if you'd like to. So, once again, it's breaking news in 2010 that it's happened, but this guy wrote on it um, quite a bit earlier, back in February of the same year. Well, you know, we've got all these problems, and you would think that the people that are supposed to be experts on money would be screaming the loudest. You would think the, the economists of this nation would be saying, look, this is madness. This is, this is utter madness. We have to do something here. God, we have to stop this. You're spending money we don't have. Stop the deficit. Nope. Nope. The financial geniuses that got us into this mess... I uh, have an article out on Bloomberg today, uh, written by Bob Willis. Actually, it was put out the 29th, so two days ago. And here is the headline. U.S. should put growth ahead of deficit cuts, economists say. I, I almost have to read it again. U.S. should put growth ahead of deficit cuts, economists say. Why do they always put that in a headline? Economists say. The Treasury says, you know. 
Bernanke says. You know, it's just weird the way they write a, 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 a headline. But, okay, let's let's read a little bit about this. And again, you're going to hear names like Barack Obama in here and Ben Bernanke. It's still not partisan. It might be by the writer, but it's not for me. They're just the people in charge right now, okay? Policymakers should focus on promoting economic growth and job creation rather than deficit reduction, a majority of respondents said in a survey by the National Association for Business Economics released today. Three-quarters of respondents, so 75% of of economists out there, say President Barack Obama's administration should do more to support job creation with leading prescriptions. Uh, with the leading prescription being clarity on future tax policy and regulation, the group said in a statement. A majority of respondents said the 2003 tax cut should be allowed to expire at the end of the year. So by raising, letting a tax cut expire is raising taxes, folks. Political spin aside, if you had a tax cut and I take it away, I've effectively raised your taxes. Okay, So raising taxes will fix things. So the economists say. Taking more money out of the economy and putting it into the hands of the government will create jobs. What? Fine. The near-term focus should be the promotion of economic growth. NABE President Lynn Reeser, chief economist at Point Luma Nazarene University in San Diego, California, said in a statement, Respondents also do not believe another stimulus package is necessary, but think the various tax cuts should be extended beyond their scheduled expiration date next year. This guy wants the tax cuts to be extended. They're from the same place. They're the same people. The paragraph above says the cut should be allowed to expire. The next line says that they should be uh, allowed be, should be extended. The government last week released revised figures showing the economy grew at 1.6% rate in the second quarter, capping recent data that prompted economists to lower their forecasts for the second half of the year. Federal Reserve Chairman Ben S. Bernanke on August 27th said the central bank will do all that it can, end quote, to ensure continuation of the economic recovery. What does that mean? That means that the Fed will continue to buy up our own debt. So we're really printing money out of thin air now. But here's the overall thing. The overall thing is that the geniuses, the financial luminaries that said it was a good idea to let banks leverage 40 to 1, that said dividends would be good for the economic growth of our country, that created the economic weapon of mass destruction that exploded in all our faces, those same people say now, eh, you know, so what? The current administration has spent more money than the United States government has from George Washington to George Bush II. Do you know that? The Obama administration, in two years, when you look at all of their spending, because a lot of the money that the Obama administration, not this is math, a lot of the money the Obama administration has slated to be spent is being spent over a 10-year period. When you look at the total spending that's come out of this government... It is more than George Bush back to George Washington combined. That should scare the crap out of you. And if it was John McCain in office, it would be the same way. The government is doing this at this point because it feels that it has to. This is the death throes of a nation. This is an attempt to defer the pain long enough for all these old rich guys to die and miss it. And the ones that are just, you know, going to be around for it, long enough for them to rob as much as they can and get out of Dodge before the fat lady sings.
That's what you're seeing right now. This nation is acting ridiculous in its actions. We're trying to fix debt with more debt. And economists are saying, that's what we should do. Screw the deficit. Just grow the economy. Don't worry about the fact that that guy's broke. Just give him another Amex card with a higher limit on it. And it, it fix it so he doesn't have to make payments for a year. And six months from now, he'll look great. That's what this says. Read the article for yourself. Um, in spite of all the green shoots of recovery, stock market's not doing so well. Um, in fact, they fell yesterday. And this is an article that is uh, available on the Wall Street Journal uh, by uh, Kate Gibson. New York Market Watch, U.S. stocks fell sharply Monday, adding to losses for August so far as investors worried about the economy at the start of a data-riddled week, which accumulates with the monthly employment report. The problem is Friday's unemployment number, and investors may be staying on the sidelines concerned about it, said Howard Silverblatt, Senior Index Analyst of Standard & Poor's. Those monthly numbers are important, whether we're looking at housing, durable goods, or anything else. It still comes down to jobs. No jobs, no recovery, Silverblatt said. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 140.92 points, or 1.4%, to end at 10,009.73 near-session lows. The Dow is currently off 4.4% for August, with only one trading session left in the month. The market is having a bit of a temper tantrum saying businesses should step up and start hiring, pe hiring people or we need more, one more shot of stimulus, said Burt White, chief investment officer at LPL Financial. All right. So now the conservatives are saying maybe we do need some stimulus money. Not the conservative politicians. They know that's a poison pill right now. But, you know, now all these people that are in the investment community want stimulus. Now, they, you'd say they already wanted stimulus. No, they wanted banker bailouts. The stimulus, they're like, yeah, whatever. They kind of kept their mouth shut about it because they knew it was going to go through. But now we're starting to hear the business sector say, maybe the government needs to put some more money in. The government's going to say, hell no, we're not doing that with an election coming up, but maybe we'll do it later. Maybe we'll come up with a tricky new name for it and do it the right way under Republican leadership. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Here's the point. What I want you to get out of this, this market falter and drop, and this is short-term and this is trader stuff, and this isn't about what you do with your money over the next 50 years when we look at what the market's doing today. But we're in a position today where it's very likely that the stock market's going to break a psychological number again, which is 10,000. The Dow 10,000 has become kind of a psychological number. In fact, I won't guarantee you that it'll finish below 10,000, but I'll put it to you this way. It's early morning while I'm recording the show, and if the Dow doesn't go below $10,000 or 10,000 points today, I'll eat my hat tomorrow for you on the air. That's how sure I am the market will go, at least for some time today, below 10000 And that's a psychological blow to investors, because even the investors that are kind of hanging there, it doesn't really, it's not be a big deal, really, if the market is 9999 or 10001 It's two points, and it's insignificant of the whole, but there is a psychological boundary there. But the big issue is, why are the markets still faltering? I mean, this crap's been going on now since, you know, 
the big crash in the summer of 2008, followed by the bigger crash in the, the winter of, of 2009. And then we had this big rally, and everybody thought things were getting better, even though nobody had a job. And now it's just faltering, and it's going below that deadly 10,000-point number again in August, and an election's coming, and there's going to be a bloodbath. And what the hell's going on? And why won't investors buy into these stocks with a market sitting around 10K when they were willing to buy these stocks when the market's sitting around 14k three years ago. Why aren't they believing? Why aren't they betting on the long-term play? It's all about jobs, just like the article says. If people don't have jobs, they don't have money. If they don't have money, they're not spending. The people that do have jobs are looking at all of their good friends that don't have jobs. They're looking at all of their friends that maybe still have a job, but they've got their hours cut back. Here's the psychology of what's going on. People don't dig into this in Wall Street Journal and in you know Fox News Report and things like that. And this is why I talk about them here. We have to understand the underlying psychology at the individual level. Joe uh, works for a pretty big firm, and he makes a good salary. He's you know a hundred k plus earner, and his wife knock, knocks down sixty k. They have a household income of hundred and seventy, hundred eighty thousand dollars. Let's say. And uh, they live in a nice neighborhood, and they've spent more money than they have, but basically their finances are still working. Joe says to his wife, hey, Tammy, um, we haven't seen Bob and Sue for a long time. Why don't we call them up this Friday evening and see if they'd like to go out for drinks and maybe uh, some dinner and some stuff like that and just hang out? And she says, fine. So they call up Bob and Sue, and Bob says, um, yeah, we'd love to, but we really can't. Oh, you got plans? Yeah, you know, and you don't want to talk about it. And then eventually, you know, they get out of Bob, and Bob says, you know, um, we had a lot of cutbacks at work, and I'm still working, but uh, I had to take a, a pretty big salary cut, and, uh, and and Sue's had to has been cut back as well, and we're just kind of being a little bit more conservative with our spending right now. And after he hangs up the phone, you know, the guy that made the phone calls like, huh. And then he goes to work on Monday thinking how lucky he is to still have a job. And he starts hearing rumblings because he's an upper level employee about having to do some proposed cutting. And he's not on the list for proposed cuts. But all of a sudden he starts thinking to himself, huh, maybe we're being a little bit stupid. Which is a good thing for him. But a bad thing when millions of people go through this experience and curtail their spending for the economy because our economy is designed to go one way and one way only up. Our economy is not designed for stability. It is designed for growth only because it's based on debt. And that causes a retraction in the economy and that causes short-term deflation, which is what we're dealing with right now. Prices have not gone up right now. They've gone down. And they've gone down across the board on most things. Things cost less today. And you would think that's good for people, but if you have less money, then deflation doesn't help you. If you haven't saved money, deflation doesn't help you. That's the state of our country today, and that's why our stock market is crumbling. I also want to talk about something else today. Um, I want to talk about the U.S. debt clock. And you can see the U.S. debt clock, and I'll put a link to it in today's show notes at usdebtclock.org. And the big number everybody talks about is our U.S. national debt. Our U.S. national debt is about $13.3 trillion. And if we look at the individual level and say, well, what does that mean that you owe, I owe, and your 
two-year-old baby owes, and you know you're you know if you have an expectant wife, as soon as that new baby comes out into the world, what is that new baby going to owe the day that they're born? Well, that's forty-three thousand dollars, forty-three thousand dollars. And I think a lot of Americans are foolish when they see that number because what they think is, yeah, good luck getting it for me. I'm not paying you. You don't understand that you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for it with inflation. That's the only way they can get the money back is by inflating the currency so that you lose. They're going to tax you that forty-three thousand through inflation. By the time they get done doing it, though, you're going to owe eighty thousand, and they'll just keep taxing you with inflation. See, when they devalue money, your money's worth less. You just paid a tax. You just don't know it. That money's not gone. It didn't disappear. It went into the hands of the bankers that run the country. It went into the coffers of the Federal Reserve. It went into the bank in your backyard, your local bank, who's practicing fractional reserve lending. The money doesn't disintegrate. It's collected. It's accumulated in the form of interest in the hands of the lender. That's what inflation does. But the, here, let's go some numbers on the U.S. debt clock, and you can watch it move. And it's almost sickening to watch the debt climb and to watch everything else happen. Let's talk about some numbers on this clock that no one ever talks to you about. Forty-three thousand a citizen sucks, but you know a lot of citizens don't pay taxes. So we actually say of the people who have to pay for this bill, how much do we owe? The debt per taxpayer is about a hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So they know that your two-year-old isn't going to pay, and they know that the person that lives a few miles from you on welfare isn't going to pay. But you're going to pay, and you're going to pay a hundred twenty k if you're a taxpayer. Like I said, that number isn't really accurate because everybody's being hit with this through the inflation tax. But if we were to pay it off the way that the government always makes it sound like we're going to pay it off, with you know receipts and taxes, if we just tax the rich more, if we just cut the spending more, if we're going to pay it off, then the average taxpayer has to pay one hundred twenty thousand dollars in taxes to get this thing paid off. Here's the bigger one. This is the one. At the bottom of the clock, this is the one that nobody looks at, and this is the one that I would look at if I were running this country as a corporation. Down at the bottom of the U.S. national debt clock, we have assets and liabilities. Assets is everything that we own, all our money, all our stuff, all our houses. We are the wealthiest nation in the world. We have national assets of seventy-three trillion. $73 trillion. That is more wealth than you could ever imagine. That's how much money this nation that's going bankrupt has. Here's the problem. When we look at liabilities, how much we owe. We owe $110 trillion in growing. The difference between that 110 and that 73 is how broke this country is. And that's how broke we are. Let me explain that to you. If we sell everybody's house, everybody's car, take everybody's money, take everybody's land, if we take every bit of wealth this nation has and cash it in, however the hell we would pull that off, We have liabilities that exceed that to the tune of about $32 trillion. $32 trillion. It should make you ill. 
It should make you realize that sooner or later we are going to have to pay the consequences of this type of ignorance that we've lived with for so long. And it's not going to get any better here anytime soon. And if it does, it's short term. I've been forecasting that false recovery. I'm beginning to wonder if we've already seen it. If it didn't go quite as good as I thought it would, I don't know. I still see some kind of a bubble of improved everything and everybody thinking it's better before the real flush. But I'm telling you the flush is coming. Uh, If I wanted to make you feel better, I should tell you where the economies are growing. So where are the economies growing? Uh, They're growing in India and they're growing in China. Let me read another little uh, article to you. This is from uh, the New York Times. So again, credible news source, Mumbai. While many developed economies worry increasingly about slowing growth and continued high unemployment, India said Tuesday that the economy was accelerating. Sharp increases in manufacturing, mining, and services helped India, still considered a developing country along with China, grow at a rate of 8.8% in the three months that ended in June. Compared with the same period a year earlier, it was the fastest pace in more than two years. The economy grew at a rate of 8.6% in the quarter that ended in March. Economists said the new data reflected the strength of India's recovery from the global financial crisis, but they added the economy might not be able to keep up the pace in coming months. The growth rates of industrial production and exports, for instance, have begun to fall. So where they're hurting is their exportation business. Why? Because they're selling to people like us. Here's why I say India and China are the rising giants. Billion people apiece, huge workforce. Not really that concerned with if their people get killed in, you know, accidents and whatever, willing to sacrifice them, um, you know, on construction projects like building dams and all. Um, willing to, you know, a work ethic that's unbelievable at the individual and, and the, the national level. And, uh, nowhere to go but up because they're still a third world nation to a large degree. Both of them. Now, a lot of people look at that and they scoff and they say things like, yeah, China's total GDP doesn't even, you know, add up to what California's is. I mean, you, you look at a billion people, but when you take it per capita, they, these guys are some of the poorest people in the world. And, and look at how much of their country's still undeveloped. And, you know, they really don't have their act together. And, and they're, they're under this, you know, this is the system that allows them to, to sacrifice people just, just to get a job done. You know? Yeah? How many people died building the Hoover Dam? How many people died bringing water to, to, to the, the coast of California from, from the, the stored water way up in the hills? How many people died building the Erie Canal? These are all in America, folks. How many people died when the U.S. built the Panamanian Canal? How many things did this nation build in the early 1900s, in the late 1800s, where human life was considered secondary to the goal? Do you know what Europe considered the United States in 1900? A third world country. Not worth the time to discuss. Something to pilfer. Something to raid economically. But nothing. People that, you know... Long, long after Europe had made the move to having plumbing, people in the United States were still using outhouses. My father was using an outhouse in the 50s. The 50s in rural Pennsylvania. We were mocked by the world as a nation. And we rose up to be the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world. 
we did it in 50 years. There was no doubt by 1950 that the third world nation of 1900 was the most powerful nation in the world. And it wasn't just about having an atomic bomb. It was about the fact that we took a nation that had so many things left to be done and we went and we did them. And then in our arrogance, we forgot to keep doing them. If we look at the stimulus bill, $800 billion, call it a trillion dollars, by the time we pay all the bills, what do we get from this? A few billion dollars worth of windmills, that's great. A few billion dollars worth of roads, that's great. The bulk of the money went to advertise the money being spent, tell us how the money was being spent, create transparency that still hasn't occurred. Seriously, billions of dollars for programs for transparency in government that I have, I've seen no transparency in government. And most of that money, once it's spent, gone. No interstate highway system, no tunnel, no Hoover Dam producing electricity for 200 years after it was built, no wind farms, one or two little ones, but no big expansive wind farms fueling 10% of the country's energy needs like we could have built with that money easily enough. A small portion of that money, by the way, we could have done that with. No, we get a turtle tunnel in Florida. We get habitat improvement for a mouse in California. This is what we got for $800 billion. And China is putting their money, which is small compared to ours, and India is putting their money into things that build the infrastructure of their nations. They are where the United States was in 1900, right now. And they are looking to Africa to be their version of what the United States did with Hong Kong and China and Japan as we built up. And what it means for our country is a decline in relevancy and a decline in dominance and taking a secondary role to somebody else. And you'll think, Jack, you're not patriotic. You don't believe in America. I believe in America. I believe we could remain the shining light of this world. But mathematically right now, the numbers don't work. They just don't. And it's up to us to do something about that. Before I close up today with what I think we need to be doing, I want to bring on Peter Schiff as my guest. Now, he's not really my guest. He's a guest of CNBC here. Uh, but I'm going to bring some audio from a YouTube video on for you to listen to about something even worse. The, um, the biggest bubble in history. The U.S. Treasury bond bubble. So rather than trying to explain it to you, let me bring on Peter Schiff. And one quick note with that, you're going to hear a lot of like, zoom, all these weird noises. Um, that's the amateur graphics that these idiots use during their interviews as they bring a graph in and stuff and uh, uh, look like, you know, like 17-year-olds are doing their video production, honestly. Um, nothing I can do to get that out of there. So that's what those sounds are. Uh, if you're on the road, it's not a spaceship coming over your, your vehicle or anything. And again, now, Mr. Schiff on the uh, the current... Uh, potential for total disaster in the U.S. Treasury bond market. Unfortunately, I have heard that we just lost Mr. Faber, so we're going to check back with him in the meantime. We have now with us Peter Schiff, president of Euro Pacific Capital Incorporated, and CNBC's very own Sue Herrera. Good to see you guys. Peter, I'll throw the same question at you. You've got a few concerns out there about the, uh, shall we say, health of the U.S. government and what that means for treasuries. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I can speak for Mark as well. Uh, you know, I, I, I've met okay, him many so times. And we, we, we agree on this. But, yeah, I mean, the bond market is the mother of all bubbles right now. And I think when it bursts, the losses uh, will dwarf uh, the combined losses of the stock market bubble and the real estate bubble. You know, the problem is there is no way for the government to pay this money back. Uh, the only way they could do that would be a tax increases that are just horrendous and would never be accomplished, or the government's going to have to tell people on Social Security or Medicare that they're not going to get their checks because the government needs it uh, to, to pay interest on the debt. And it's not only paying the interest. What I'm afraid is that when people realize that we can't pay this money back, we're not going to be able to roll over all this short-term debt. And so it's not just paying the interest. We're going to have to start retiring the principal. Mm -hmm. And that is just impossible. Well, what about so there's going to be massive inflation. What about this theory that we might inflate our way out of debt? But that's you, but you don't inflate your way out. I mean, maybe from from the purpose of the government, but the people who hold the bonds, right. they're getting their purchasing power inflated away. But that's Peter, where the, the Fed, losses will come. The Fed has just told us that they will continue to buy treasuries. They're going to try and fight deflation, and they will do that by continuing to buy treasuries. The individual investor took out $33 billion out of stock market mutual funds in the last seven months or so. I know you're very familiar with that because they want the return of their money. They don't care whether they're even making any return on their money. They are so adverse to equities. I agree with you, the bond market trade is very crowded right now. But until the Fed signals that it's going to do a de facto tightening, or until the individual investor is willing to put themselves out on the risk curve, they don't have any place else to put their money other than in the mattress or in U.S. Treasuries. Well, there are a lot of places to put it around the world that are a lot safer than lending money to the U.S. government. But, you know, well, they're putting when, it in corporate bonds. You know, well, whether you're but, talking about treasuries or corporate bonds, we've had the biggest issuance of corporate bonds this month that we've had in some time, and they're getting a decent yield. But they're not willing to buy the equity, even for the dividend. Yeah, I know. People, if you go back... Ten years ago, where was all the money flowing? U.S. investors were piling money into stock market funds, and then we had the worst ten years in the history of the stock right. market. And they They're making that. the same mistake with the bond market. That this decade is going to be the worst decade for bonds in U.S. history. Bondholders are going to get wiped out. I mean, because either the government's going to default or they're going to inflate. But either way, the people holding the bonds are left holding the How bag. How much time do you think is left in the bond market? I mean, I do agree with you with it's a crowded trade, but until we get the risk aversion problem out of the way and until the Fed backs off yeah. how, well, much, how much time do you what think has to left? happen is people have to understand where the risks are if you really are risk adverse you don't want to own treasuries you want to own gold you know or you want if you want to own treasuries own them in Switzerland you know okay. own them in some other country where the government is not as reckless as this government okay and hang it's on a question of, so I know there's a lot of technical jargon there and you have two fairly well uh, educated people talking, the interviewer there and Mr. Schiff, about the bond market. And some of that may have like slid past you. And let me try to make some of it make sense. Let me try to just drill down to the nuts and bolts of what Mr. Schiff is saying here. What he's saying is that, that, that all the money in the world has run to the United States and bought U.S. Treasuries as a safe haven. It's what's propped up the dollar and kept it from falling more than it than it was falling up until this happened. And what he's saying, here's what happened. For years and years, all the foreign money came into this country, looked at our stock market, and went, woohoo! And they bought the crap out of U.S. stocks. And then as the market began to fall, they began divesting themselves of stocks, and that precipitated the first crash, the first big crash. And billions and billions and billions of dollars flowed out of the stock market. Now, 
here's the thing. When you have a billion dollars, these big institutional investors, you can't just put it under a mattress. You got to put it somewhere. And you can only buy so much gold. You can only buy so much silver. You can only buy so much land. And you, even if you're going to own silver and gold in land, you have a tax liability. You have to earn some money with your money to pay your own taxes. There's actually a, a, a you know burden to being rich. You got to make a little bit of money, or you don't keep and grow your wealth. I'm not feeling bad for them. I'm just telling you the way these guys think. So they said, well, where's the one place that our money should be safe? And they looked at the U.S. Treasury market and said, basically, the bonds have been stable for 20 years. The the government's paid its debt and. And the, and the United States government are fools. They'll sell us as much debt as we can buy. So all that money ran there. And then even after the big crashes and all, tens of billions of dollars more this year were liquidated from mutual funds. People took their money out, and a lot of that money has gone into U.S. bonds. Even when the people took their money, this is the unseen part here, you know, Grandma ran down to the, the thing and said, I want my money out. And she said, I'm going to put it where it's safe in the bank. She put it in the bank. What did the bank do with it? The bank didn't turn around and loan it to somebody to buy a house or, or invest in a business. The banks are buying treasuries with Grandma's money and your money and my money. All the money we're saving and putting in the bank, banks turning around and buying treasuries with it. And they're borrowing money. They're paying us less than 1% interest. They're borrowing money for less than 1% interest. And they're skimming the spread. And what Mr. Schiff is saying is this can only go on so long. Eventually, all these short-term bonds start to come to fruition. So somebody went in and bought a billion dollars worth of bonds on a, on a one-year bond. Now you have the challenge is to get the investor to leave the billion dollars in the bonds. Once the investors start pulling the money out, the government can't cover. And when it can't cover, the only choice then is to go nuts with inflation and deflate the value of the bond. So the bondholder loses, and the people of the country lose, and the nation loses. Or, you keep the investor in by raising rates to a ridiculous level that you can't pay, and you defer the pay. But one way or another, eventually, all this money that's in the short-term U.S. Treasuries is going to want to come out. And when it does, since it was the money from everything, it's the safe haven. The people that were getting burned in real estate got what they could out and went to bonds. The people that were getting burned in the stock market, right? And all the financial institutions of the world turned to bonds. It's created the biggest bubble ever seen. That's our debt bubble. Those bonds are what we owe as a nation. That's our national debt. And basically what Schiff's saying is sooner or later, the people are going to want their money. And talking about what it's going to look like on the other side. The second part of this interview, they bring Mark Farber on. I want to go ahead and let him continue on here a bit so you can hear another really intelligent analyst. His accent still makes him a little tough to listen to for some people, but this guy is really laser sharp, smart. Listen to him corroborate and expand on what Mr. Schiff just said. Joining us via phone right now is Mr. Mark Father, fund manager and publisher of the Gloom Doom gloom boom and doom report i should say uh mr farber good to have you with us we've just been talking about this whole issue of u.s treasuries whether or not there's a bubble you say yes why well basically i think that there isn't much upside potential in treasuries unless it's for the short term and even the short term is uncertain but if i look at 10 years ahead where do i want to have my money 
and certainly not in U.S. Treasuries. Well, why? What is your big concern here? Is it the fundamental... My biggest concern is that because of a weak economy, the deficits, the budget deficits, the fiscal deficits will remain very high. And with Mr. Obama as a president, I think there's a very good chance that the deficits will actually go up. As a result of that, the government debt will expand and expand. And one day, the interest payments on the government debt will become unbearable. You know, but Mark, a, a lot of people keep saying that. It's a scenario that we've heard certainly time and time again. And yet, when you look at the actual landscape out there, foreigners always seem to want to keep buying our debt. We've seen a little bit of slack yes, off the Chinese. I agree with Chinese. you. In 1999 and 2000, foreigners also wanted to buy the Nasdaq. And what happened after is a major collapse. I would not look at foreign buying as a very intelligent leading indicator. Moreover, if you tell me to buy U.S. government bonds, they have been rallying since 1981. In other words, we have a 19 years rally. I'm not particularly interested to invest in an asset class that has been in a bull market for 19 years. Then I'd rather buy an asset class, whatever it is, that has been in a bear market for 10 or 19 years. So what is the better place for an investor's dollar right now? Well, I think I would buy essentially farmland, and I think agricultural commodities will continue to be strong. And as the previous person said, I think that gold belongs in a portfolio. You know Interesting, isn't it? I won't go much more into the, the bond issue itself, because I think we've talked about enough of what's wrong today, and I want to give you some advice as to what you need to be doing going forward with your life. Um, but we did hear Mr. Farver come on and, and pick up where Mr. Schiff left off and really drive home the point and say, hey, look, this guy just said exactly the way things are. Here's a little bit more information on that. But in the end, when asked, well, what the hell should I do with my money if putting it into a bond is no longer safe, unlike Peter Schiff that says, well, go put it in a Swiss bond, Farver says, hey, agricultural commodities, farmland, and gold. Now, one thing we have to understand is that these guys are speaking to people that are worth a hell of a lot more money than you and me on some levels. We're not dealing with multi-million dollar portfolios now, are we? We live in middle America, and we have middle American lives. And we are able to pay our bills, maybe, or, or hopefully you are. Maybe you're not. If not, I hope you figure out how to get some stability under you. And, and my thoughts are with you, and I hope you sort these things out as soon as you can. But we're all just kind of getting by. A lot of us are smart, and we're saving money, we're living debt-free, and we're building up the opportunity for ourselves to have something special, even if everything collapses. But what do you do with the money? Well, Mr. Farber says agricultural commodities farmland, and gold. Now, for the multi-million dollar investor, he might be saying, go out and buy a farm conglomerate, put your money in soybean and wheat futures, uh, buy stocks, and they'd probably tell him to buy stocks in these genetically modified food companies that I despise like Monsanto, because they're going to have a hell of a lot of an opportunity to make money in this destroyed economy. And uh, it's part of why the economy is being purposely destroyed, so the rich can get richer. 
and uh, you know, get yourself a, a big old safe full of uh, gold bars and put a you know half a million of your fortune in gold to, to, to act as insurance. We can't really do that, but we can emulate it, can't we? We can do that by doing the things that we talk about on this show on a daily basis. Your farmland could be your backyard, and maybe if you can make it work for you financially, that bug-out location that's a place that's outside of a little bit less in a danger zone if there's civil unrest. And those could be grown not with rows of corn and wheat, but through a permaculture model with long-term food production capability with trees, bushes, and vines and things that come back year after year after year and are largely self-regulating. Um, the agricultural commodity is your storage in your, your pantry and every other place that you figure out how to buy food smart and store food for your own needs and your own use. In fact, store it to such a point where maybe you have a surplus. One day you might even be selling off parts of your storage, believe it or not. It may not be the end of the world as we know it. You may actually get a direct return of investment out of your food storage, but even if you don't, it's food you're going to buy and eat anyway. It's a capital deferral. It's a savings. You can make it work for you in your own home. And gold, gold to me is for you, the individual, can be gold, coins or bars, or the poor man's gold as we call it, silver, which I think silver is a much safer play than gold right now, by the way. Uh, but to me, the gold in this analogy is anything that has long-term value. It's the diesel pickup truck that you can put three or 400,000 miles on as long as you change the damn oil in it and take care of it. It's the building that outbuilding that's going to act as uh, additional storage for you. It's paying off your house and owning it outright. And if the value goes down, you don't care because you don't owe on it anymore. It's allowing yourself to live in a place where you're not overtaxed. It's getting out of places like Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and all of California. It's And Pennsylvania is a whole. And I love Pennsylvania. I grew up there. But the government of Pennsylvania has gone insane The governments of New Jersey have gone insane. California's been insane. It's figuring out how to get out of these places and getting to some place safer. Or, if you're going to stay there, getting to the place in them that's the most affordable, reasonable place you can be. Gold is the tool that will last for 25 years. That you'll use often. Gold is the stockpile of the ability to grow your own food in the form of a seed bank. Gold is anything that you can put up today that will keep its value to you tomorrow, not just to the world. And if I was investing money, I would look at going out into the worlds that, that, uh, that we just heard about there, you know, that Mark Farver talked about. If I was managing large amounts of money, I would be buying farmland right now. And I would be transforming it into a new type of farming. That's where I would put my money. So whether it's the micro scale or the macro scale there, as you look at it, no matter how much money you have or don't have, this is how to insulate yourself right now. <clears throat> you didn't hear any one of these guys talking about, hey, I think the solution to your problem is to go borrow a bunch of money. Borrow money and put it here or leverage debt this way or, you know, go and, and, and naked call this or naked put that. You didn't hear any of that stuff. You heard solid advice. Own something of value. Prepare. Be prepared. Times are going to get really good and really bad at the same time. I know that sounds weird. It sounds like a contradiction. But in the worst of times, there's been people that have prospered. 
And they're not always the greedy rich. So a lot of times they're just the smart. My family was never wealthy. I may be the most successful business person to ever come out of my family. And I'm not that successful. But even in the Great Depression, what my grandfather told me is there was always food on the table. And at every family dinner, even when the whole family gathered around, at the end of dinner, there was always a little bit of extra food to give away to a neighbor or to put away for later. No one went hungry. The furnace always ran and the house was always warm in the winter. And the garden always grew in the summer. And everybody hunted and everybody fished and everybody knew how to live. So when the Great Depression began, we didn't notice. And when the Great Depression ended, we didn't notice. All we knew is a lot of us had to leave for a little while and go fight a war and come back to our lives. And somebody would, a lot of people today would look at my grandfather and think, what a simple-minded individual. A person that let the whole world pass them by. My grandfather knew what was going on in the world. It wasn't that he didn't know. It was that he didn't care. Because he knew what really mattered was taking care of his family and making sure there was a roof over a head, making sure that they were in debt to no man, making sure that everybody was well-fed and everybody knew that every other member of the family would be there for them if they needed them. America, we have lost that. That's how we fix our economy. We don't fix our economy with bailouts. We don't fix it by what political party we, we, we support. We fix it by fixing our individual economies. And we invest in the things that we need to go forward. Our property, our commodities that run our household and our lasting gold that fuels our lives. Now, I know you heard a lot of things today that you might hear on you know, CNBC or MSNBC or Fox Business Report. You heard a lot of mainstream press, and people say, I don't tune into the Survival Podcast to hear that stuff. I tune in to hear the things that are more in tune with the real people. Once in a while, like today, we have to pull out, we have to look at that world. We have to see it. So that we can come back and be grounded in the things that I've just discussed with you. You won't hear that type of talk on national television or national radio. Not yet, anyway. But it's real. It's who you are. And it's why as bad as things seem, there's hope and you should live your life with optimism. As I've said before, we are optimistic pessimists. We know that shit can go wrong. We know it can go wrong. We're watching it fall apart all around us. But if we were pessimists, if we were doom and gloom, we wouldn't have pantries full of food. We wouldn't pay off our debt. We wouldn't do any of that crap. We'd just ride along for the and say, oh, the hell with it. We might as well go down enjoying it, you know? But no, we plan for the future because we believe in the future. That's who we really are. That's what being a survivalist is really all about. And with that, I'll wrap up and I'll just remind you. Make sure you're investing in yourself, your household, your family, and the things that you need to go forward in the future. It's not about a monetary return. It's about a lifestyle quotient, living that better life. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even fail.
just can't pay Cause nobody up there cares They're living 